Welcome to Leading Tone. I'm your host, Jim Ware. In this episode, I'm going to talk about John Williams' score for Steven Spielberg's 2001 film AI, Artificial Intelligence. On March 7th, 1999, the world lost a filmmaking icon. Not long after completing Eyes Wide Shut, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, renowned director Stanley Kubrick passed away at the age of 70. Across a career spanning five decades, he left behind a legacy of outstanding films. His 13 pictures were diverse, produced to exacting standards, and all uniquely memorable. All filmmakers have potential future projects at various stages of development, awaiting investment, awaiting the green light, or just languishing in development hell. Kubrick was no exception, but the intensely private and sometimes paranoid director gave little away to his closest friends, let alone the wider filmmaking community. As the film world mourned, fans of the director wondered what, if anything, might become of those unrealised visions. Let's rewind 30 years. In 1969, not long after the release of Kubrick's seminal 2001 A Space Odyssey, author Brian Aldiss published a short story entitled Super Toys Last All Summer Long. Set in the not-too-distant future, it tells the story of a couple, the Swintons, Henry and Monica, and their son David, who happens to be a lifelike robot, programmed to love his mother, but not able to fully express it. In the early 1980s, Stanley Kubrick acquired the rights to Aldiss' short story, planning to expand the story into a film to be titled AI, Artificial Intelligence. He also hired Aldous to write a treatment, although ultimately ended up firing him due to creative differences a few years later. The film was budgeted at a substantial $65 million, which would have made it one of the most expensive motion pictures of all time, mostly due to a plethora of technically ambitious special effects. Although Kubrick's original intention was to direct the picture himself, he ultimately decided to step back and hand the reins to another. Kubrick first met Steven Spielberg at Elstree Studios just outside London in 1979 and formed a firm friendship. Kubrick's fear of flying put paid to many face-to-face -face meetings, but the pair were regularly in contact via transatlantic phone calls and secretive faxes. At one point, Kubrick insisted that Spielberg install a fax machine in his bedroom, apparently the most secure room in the house. It was hastily removed shortly after Kubrick started faxing Spielberg at 3am. Spielberg described Kubrick as a benevolent inquisitor, extracting as much detail about Spielberg's project as possible while not giving anything away regarding his own. Kubrick broached the subject of AI with Spielberg in the mid-1980s, initially spending four hours discussing the intricacies of the project and its parallels with Spielberg's own work. Whereas in Super Toys Last All Summer Long, David is uncertain of his mechanical origin and does not explicitly yearn to become human, Kubrick recast AI as a futuristic retelling of Pinocchio. Kubrick is rumoured to always have referred to the project as Pinocchio throughout development. Pinocchio is also one of Spielberg's favourite fairy tales. He's a fan of the 1940 Disney animation and insisted that composer John Williams worked When You Wish Upon a Star into Close Encounters of the Third Kind back in 1977. 
despite having a legendary director and a willing studio, the film continued to languish. Special effects were one of the sticking points, and Kubrick dropped the film to work on his adaptation of Louis Begley's Holocaust novel Wartime Lies. This project was also dropped, apparently when he viewed an unfinished work print of Spielberg's Schindler's List. Spielberg's other film of 1993, Jurassic Park, had a more positive influence. It demonstrated cutting-edge computer-generated imagery and convinced Kubrick that the technology was now ready to achieve his vision. In another Jurassic Park connection, Kubrick screen-tested Joseph Mazzello, Tim, for the role of David, even going so far as to place him under contract for two years. In 1995, Kubrick handed the directorial reins to Spielberg, who handed them back to Kubrick soon thereafter, feeling that the material would be the commercial success that Kubrick deserved. Spielberg moved on to other projects, and Kubrick committed himself to Eyes Wide Shut. Shortly after Kubrick's death, his widow and his longtime producer Jan Harlan formally offered the film to Spielberg. By November 1999, Spielberg was busy writing the screenplay, his first solo screenwriting credit since Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The script was based on a detailed 90-page treatment written for Kubrick by Ian Watson. Spielberg announced AI as his next project a couple of months later, having passed on the first Harry Potter, Memoirs of a Geisha, and Pushing Minority Report back a year. With a vast amount of development work completed by Chris Baker, Spielberg was able to hit the ground running while remaining as close to Kubrick's vision as possible. Rising star Haley Joel Osment was cast as David, with a supporting cast including Jude Law, Francis O'Connor, William Hurt, and Brendan Gleeson. Production began in August 2000 under obsessive, almost Kubrickian secrecy. Behind the scenes were many of Spielberg's key collaborators and Amblin team, including producer Kathleen Kennedy, cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, editor Michael Kahn, and of course, composer John Williams. most recent collaborations with Spielberg were the 1999 Millennium Celebration Unfinished Journey and 1998's Saving Private Ryan. Elsewhere, Williams had returned to the Star Wars universe in 1999 with George Lucas's The Phantom Menace, scored Alan Parker's Frank McCourt adaptation Angela's Ashes, and Roland Emmerich's 2000 Mel Gibson vehicle The Patriot. Away from the film world, he had recently completed Four Seiji in honor of conductor Seiji Ozawa, three pieces for solo cello, and Tree Song. AI marked the 17th collaboration between Spielberg and Williams, and only the third time the pair had tackled science fiction together, the last being E.T. the Extraterrestrial 19 years earlier. Kubrick's influence on the production was strong, and Spielberg has been quoted as saying that it felt as if Kubrick was looking over his shoulder every day on set. Kubrick's approach to music was fundamentally different to that of Spielberg. Kubrick typically chose a wide selection of pre-existing music to underscore his pictures, often classical or orchestral in nature. 
Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey is the most widely known example of this technique, and perhaps one of the most controversial. Composer Alex North attended the premiere unaware that his score had been dropped, and Bernard Herrmann described the use of music as the height of vulgarity in our time. Nevertheless, Kubrick persisted, and it became a hallmark of his filmmaking technique. Spielberg and Williams didn't take a Kubrickian needle-drop approach to the music. Spielberg's musical approach is, for the most part, to use John Williams for a grand orchestral score, and AI was no different. They did respect the one specific musical choice that Kubrick made. Richard Strauss's De Rosen Cavalier must be used somewhere, although he never specified exactly where. Spielberg's execution of Kubrick's vision expands greatly on Brian Aldiss's original short story. The core of Aldiss's work is the subject of the first act. The family dynamic of the Swintons and David remains, but the Swintons now have an ill son, Martin, placed into suspended animation until a cure can be found. David is the brainchild of Professor Hobby, a robotics genius who tragically lost his own son. David, inspired by a reading of Pinocchio, longs for the unattainable goal of becoming human. The fractious relationship between the organic and the mechanical is developed into the grotesque flesh fairs and the debauchery of Rouge City in the second act. David meets framed and ostracised love mecha Gigolo Joe. Together, they go on a quest to find the Blue Fairy, travelling to meet David's creator, Professor Hobby, in a bleak, submerged New York. The third and final act takes us 2,000 years into the future to a frozen world of highly developed super mecha long after the demise of humanity. There are parallels with other pictures in Spielberg's career. Family is often a thread in Spielberg's work, even if it's only tangential to the plot. E.T., Jurassic Park, and many others. Close Encounters is also a distant relative. Its tale of obsession at the expense of family parallels David's obsessive quest to become real and prove his undying love for Monica. David's quest to find the Blue Fairy and return to his mother could also be linked to Jim's quest through inhospitable conditions to find his parents and reunite his family in Empire of the Sun. John Williams' engagement with the film began early and included visits to the film's sets at Warner Brothers Studios in Los Angeles during production. Later, after spotting the edited film, the first compositional task was to develop thematic material. To this end, he wrote six melodies that he termed cantilena, Italian for lullaby. These melodies were sketches for piano, sometimes accompanied with a solo vocalist, and had no specific usage in mind. The original sketches are merely numbered. After demonstrating these to Spielberg, the pair worked together to determine where and how they could be used, beginning with the final scene of the film. With the destination firmly in sight, Williams could work through the rest of the film sowing the seeds for thematic development. Williams wrote a lengthy and ambitious score for AI. It follows the film's three-act structure, with its use of overarching thematic material tying all the plot strands together between them. Williams skillfully deals with the dialogue-heavy scenes of the first act and the lengthy, almost wordless sequences of the third. He wrote well over two hours of music, 
with orchestration duties handled by his usual team of John Newfeld and Conrad Pope. The score was recorded over seven days in February and March 2001 at Williams' usual LA recording venue, the Sony Pictures Scoring Stage. Additional recording was also conducted at UCLA's Royce Hall. The score was written for a large orchestra, bolstered with the vocal forces of the Los Angeles Master Chorale. Expressive writing for piano, harp, and woodwinds abounds. Synthesizers are an almost constant presence, mostly as a textural colour to the harmony rather than a melodic element. Williams had been using synthesizers in his scores for many years, but throughout the 1990s had been refining and streamlining the way they were employed. The first of the Star Wars prequels, The Phantom Menace, made extensive use of synthesizer colours, and AI follows suit. Williams doesn't notate specific details regarding the type of synthesizer, but will sketch the part and describe the required sound, typically with a single word, such as spacey, wash, pretty, or ghostly. If looking to mimic specific instruments for more melodic content, it's clearly indicated in the score. A synthesized celesta is commonly used in the score for David's more robotic mannerisms, playful or otherwise. This wasn't to be William's only dalliance with the synth celesta in 2001 but that's a topic for another time. Synthesized chorus and strings put in occasional appearances too. The synthesizer textures in AI lend a cold and clinical quality to the first act of the film, often where we might expect something a little warmer. As Williams stated, the film felt haunted by Kubrick, and the music certainly embodies the spirit of the late director. Spielberg opens the film with scene-setting narration by Sir Ben Kingsley over footage of the rolling oceans that have overtaken a world ravaged by climate change. This is followed by a mammoth information dump from William Hurt's Professor Hobby as he lectures the employees of Cybertronics, one of the leading manufacturers of Mecca. It's a dense, dialogue-heavy scene, almost academic in tone, and Hobby's proposal clearly defines the premise of the film. What if a robot could love? Could a human love them back? Asides the other Cybertronics employees reveal the existence of Love Mecha and the animosity between humans and Mecha, both of which we'll encounter later. Williams wisely stays away from the dialogue. The first cue of William's score enters towards the end of the scene, as we transition to the introduction of the Swintons, a dark, emotionally ambiguous elegy for strings, perhaps a subtle nod to Cacciaturian's adagio from the Guyenne Suite, memorably used by Kubrick in 2001, and notably borrowed by James Horner for Aliens, Patriot Games, and others. It's a haunting cue, an oblique expression of the Swinton situation, 
their son is critically, perhaps terminally ill. In a future where pregnancies are strictly licensed, where do they go from here should their son die? It's evident that the first part of the film was recut after scoring. Williams' music sometimes isn't where it was intended to be, and there's some unused and alternate material. Williams wrote a cue for the scene of Professor Hobby's team selecting Henry Swinton for trialling David, but in the final mix, it was dropped. Imbued with a sense of warmth and woodwind colour from the corps anglais, the unused cue narrowly evades what will become David's theme before descending into uneasy string swells and synthesizer textures. In the film, it's replaced with the tail end of the previous cue. David's introduction also doesn't play as Williams intended. In the final mix, we hear a solo harp performance of what will become David's theme, explicitly tying that material to David. Williams' original intention was to introduce David with futuristic synthesizer tones and two separate motifs, one for David's robotic mannerisms and his mischievous nature, and another for his playfulness. The mischievous figure is often used separately, but also in combination with the playful theme, notably in the balletic hide-and-seek as David gamely tries to integrate himself into Monica's daily routine. As originally intended, David's theme is first heard on the piano as he sees family photographs of the Swintons and their son in happier times. While the musical treatment of the human characters is mostly cold and clinical, the treatment of David is anything but, with extensive and expressive use of piano embodying him with a greater humanity than his creators. The piano is closely tied to David and rarely makes an appearance if he isn't on screen. David's theme is closely tied to the concepts of memory, loss, and death. It reappears later in the first act as David discusses the concept of death with Monica, and again in the second act when we see photographs of Professor Hobby's lost son, the inspiration for David. Although it's often used in scenes involving David, it's not exclusively about him, and is more closely tied to the feelings and memories of others, be they Monica and her memories of Martin, or Professor Hobby and his own son. The concept of thematic perspective, the point of view for which the themes may be written and applied, is one of the keys to unlocking this score. 
intended perspective of David's theme is elusive. The theme is clearly used in situations that evoke memories. It's used when we first see David, suggesting the memory of the Swinton's sick son, and in a similar capacity when Monica gives David the gift of Teddy, an intelligent super toy belonging to Martin. Perhaps it's for the perfected idea of David, Professor Hobby's idealised recreation of his dead son. This thematic thread doesn't stay with David throughout the film. It dies with Professor Hobby and the rest of humanity as the film transitions to its third and final act in the far future. David's first dinner with the Swintons plays unscored in the final film, but William's intended cue for this sequence introduces another major theme. The cue completely changes the tone of the scene, from subtle playfulness to wary unease. The abandonment theme is for David from Monica's perspective, tied to her fear of his effect on the Swinton family, ultimately culminating in her decision to abandon David. In the final mix, this music is tracked into a later scene as Martin, now cured, returns to the Swinton household. The tracking dilutes the intended thematic cohesion a little, making the connections perhaps a little more on the nose. It shares several similarities with David's theme in terms of rhythm and melodic shape, introducing another concept of thematic pairings and opposites, duality. The final piece of thematic material to be introduced in the first act, and perhaps the most critical of all, is Monica's theme. Despite warnings from Henry and Cybertronics that the process is irreversible, and longing for the long-missing love of her own son, Monica follows the imprinting protocol and binds David's love to her forever. When he calls her mummy for the first time rather than Monica, we hear her theme for the first time. The use of piano ties this material to David once again. Curiously, William's original composition for this sequence used David's theme instead, but this version was never recorded. 
Monica's theme is David's idealised perspective and love for Monica, his human mother. It doesn't appear before David's imprinting and afterwards carries throughout the rest of the film as he loses and finally regains her. The return of Martin, Monica's miraculously cured son, to the Swinton household adds sibling rivalry to the family dynamic. This section of the film eschews thematic material for a sense of eerie unease and discomfort. A descending figure from the opening of the film returns at Martin's suggestion that his mother read Pinocchio to them. Monica's theme reappears briefly as she reads a passage about the Blue Fairy. This links Monica's theme to the quest that David will undertake later in the film, the seeds of which have now been planted. Unlike other Mecca, David can dream, and the story of Pinocchio inspires him to become a real boy. The object of this quest has its own thematic material paralleling Monica's theme, but this will be introduced much later. The rivalry between Martin and David escalates, and David attempts to prove his undying love for Monica in increasingly desperate and frightening ways, with no regard for how he might harm Martin or the existing family unit. David's increasingly bizarre behaviour culminates in the near drowning of Martin. This is the final straw for Henry and Monica. David's final attempt to prove his love for Monica, via a series of letters and drawings in a scene taken directly from the original short story, is underscored by a plaintive statement of his theme, but it gives way to the abandonment theme as Monica makes her final decision. Orchestra and piano intertwine as the theme is given extended development. As David is hit by the realisation that Monica is going to leave him alone, the theme transitions to piano, David's instrument, and his fate is sealed. Dissonant piano clusters overtake the thematic material as Monica drives away for the last time. David's world falls apart, and the first act comes to a close.
second act begins with an unscored introduction to Gigolo Joe and his capabilities. Upon being framed for murder, he forcibly removes his operating license, essentially becoming untraceable, and disappears into the wilderness. David and Teddy wander nearby, encountering a subculture of discarded and obsolete mecha scrounging for parts. William's score returns in low registers, accompanied by a guttural male choir as the moon rises behind them. This begins a lengthy action sequence as the improbably named Lord Johnson Johnson, played by a scenery-chewing Brendan Gleeson, rounds up Mecca for a flesh fair. David is in dark and unfamiliar territory and the score reinforces that. The low, brassy action is supported by a battery of percussion, both acoustic and synthesised. At one point, the score gives way to techno-style material, composed by William's son Joseph perhaps best known as the lead singer of Toto until the mid-1980s. Orchestral fury resumes as the Mecca are finally captured. Keen-eared listeners will note a familiar rhythmic triplet figure in the strings. This is a favourite action lick of Williams, popping up in several other scores of this period, including The Lost World, and Minority Report from 2002. There's much more to come on that score in the future. Initially, the second act issues all the thematic material from the first. The flesh fair sequence, in which Mecha are violently executed in front of a braying audience, is entirely unscored, instead featuring songs by Ministry, which incidentally was another Kubrick stipulation. Johnson Johnson's attempts to use the death of David to entertain the crowds backfire, allowing David, Teddy, and Joe to escape in the resulting chaos. Music re-enters warmly, and we hear David's theme once again over photographs, this time of Professor Hobby's long-lost son. This ties David to Professor Hobby and Hobby's son, both David's namesake and Hobby's inspiration. We rejoin David, Teddy and Joe in the wilderness as David explains his situation to Joe and his sense of purpose. He must find the Blue Fairy. In his mecha mind, 
Only as a real boy can he find Monica's true undying love. Joe suggests that they travel to Rouge City, a city of vice and iniquity where they can consult Oracle Dr. No. Playful woodwind figures give way to the rhythmic drive of the odd-metered travelling motif. Written in 7-8, rhythmic figures on wooden percussion, two marimbas, and vibraphone overlay a synthesized pulse. The off-kilter rhythms and chattering sixteenths firmly place this in the mecha world of David, Teddy, and Joe. Their quest for the Blue Fairy has begun, and the trio hitchhike their way to Rouge City. The mechanical nature of this material also suggests that David's ultimate destination is not to become human after all. Fulfilling Kubrick's musical demand, Williams interpolates Strauss's waltz from De Rosen Cavalier into the score as they cross the final bridge to the city. Joe, clearly familiar with all the hotspots, begins to give the guided tour, but something catches David's eye. Bathed in blue neon, the Madonna above Our Lady of the Immaculate Heart reminds David of his purpose here. It was at this point that Williams intended to introduce his theme for the Blue Fairy. The decision was made to hold the theme back for later. It would also have appeared at the end of the Doctor No sequence as David and Joe solve the electronic riddles and are directed onto the next stage of their quest, Manhattan. More of Joseph Williams' techno-style material underscores the pair's dramatic amphibicopter escape from Rouge City. This is followed with a grand reprise of the travelling motif, bookending the Rouge City sequence. From this point to the end of the film, Williams' music is almost continuous. The cues are lengthy, dovetailing into one another from the tail end of the second act and all the way through the third. Williams builds layer upon layer of orchestral texture on the percussive, rhythmic 7-8 travelling figure. The busy mechanical nature of the composition hints at the modernistic writing of composers such as John Adams and Steve Reich. Describing it as minimalistic is incorrect. 
everyone in the orchestra is playing something here. David sees the lost city at the end of the world, New York, or what's left of it. Darting between the buildings, David sees the weeping lions of Dr. Noah's riddle and realises that he's in the right place, heading for the headquarters of Cybertronics and his creator, and hopefully the one with the power to change him into a real boy. Exploring the seemingly deserted building, he encounters something he did not expect, his mirror image. David's uncontrollable rage at having a competitor for his mother's love is underscored with a ferocious flurry of tremolo strings, shrieking piccolos, and muted brass. David finally gets to meet his maker. We learn from Professor Hobby that Monica told him about David's obsession with the Blue Fairy, and they used Dr. No to bring him home to Cybertronics. Williams returns to the playful David theme not heard since the game of hide-and-seek earlier in the film. Appropriate, since Joe and David have effectively been playing hide-and-seek on a grand scale. Hobby leaves David alone while he gathers up his colleagues. Exploring the Cybertronics lab, he discovers that, true to Hobby's words, he's the first of a kind and not unique. Ghostly, ethereal voices underscore this discovery. It's reminiscent of some of William's writing for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. David also sees his first memory, the bird statue outside Cybertronics, and realises his true origins. Amid tiny hints at what remains of his playful theme, he jumps from the window ledge into the swelling ocean below. As he floats downwards, Williams employs soft chorus, harp, and swirling textures to follow him. He sees something, but is retrieved by Joe. As he surfaces, he tells Joe that the Blue Fairy is down there and he must go back. The authorities catch up with Joe, but before his capture, he sends David beneath the waves in the amphibicopter and William's score descends appropriately. Following David's journey underwater, we see a long submerged Pinocchio-themed funfair. Finally, 
David sees her, the Blue Fairy, and Williams introduces the final theme of the score. uses a solo soprano, Barbara Bonney, a texture not heard in the score up to this point, giving the sequence a unique and transcendent quality. Williams also prepared a fully orchestral version of this sequence to give Spielberg a different option. The final mix actually uses parts of both. David's quasi-religious quest appears to have come to an end, but the pensive sadness in the music suggests that it may not be a happy one. As the funfair collapses around him, he pleads with the Blue Fairy to make him a real boy to no avail. Two thousand years pass, and we transition to the third and final act. wordless choir follows a vehicle across frozen wastelands. The vehicle descends beneath the ice into a frozen city. The landmarks past show that these are the remains of New York. Williams wrote two cues for this sequence, both are choral in nature. The first is more textural and atonal, with overlapping choral lines, dark piano clusters, and unearthly percussion effects. The second is much more tonal and melodic. The final film intercuts between both versions. This sequence and the scenes that follow were shortened after scoring, and as such the music as written and presented on the album releases is a little longer than the finished film. The cuboid vehicle stops at an excavation site beneath the ice, the long frozen funfair where David has been trapped for two millennia. In that time, Mecha have evolved into Super Mecha, and humans have ceased to exist. David is the last remaining connection to the past, and his memories are precious to them. Williams wrote a haunting solo cello rendition of Monica's theme for the sequence of the Supermecha reading and sharing David's stored memories of his mother, but it doesn't appear in the final mix. The solo cello will return in a similar context later. 
The final film mix of this sequence tracks in a little of the haunting choral material from earlier and a wisp of solo soprano material. Shortly thereafter, David awakens in a replica of the Swinton house and once again we hear Monica's theme on the piano as he searches in vain for her. Instead, he encounters the Blue Fairy, but her thematic material is absent. As I mentioned earlier, the main musical themes of AI all have a sense of character perspective in that all can be interpreted as being from the point of view of a specific character. The Blue Fairy theme is for his quasi-religious quest for the entity that can make him human and his own beatification of her. The vision that David sees is not the Blue Fairy. Having become increasingly aware of his manipulation both by Professor Hobby and at the hands of the Supermecha, he knows this. We don't hear the theme, but a soothing solo soprano line reminds us of their earlier encounter. David is at his lowest ebb in the story here. Even his realisation of Monica's biological death 2,000 years earlier does not earn a statement of her theme. Teddy, ever the font of wisdom, provides hope in the shape of the lock of hair cut from Monica with a peaceful statement of her theme on Synth Celesta. With hope restored, a driving rhythm in harp, piano, and electric piano leads us directly into the next cue. Wistful variations on the Blue Fairy theme are heard as the film transitions to David's bedroom. The Blue Fairy theme has now migrated to the Supermecha, specifically the Specialist. They are the true Blue Fairy of this story, the one with the capability to grant David's wish, albeit temporarily. The theme is performed delicately on the harp, then again on solo cello. The theme not only migrates from one character, or rather an idea, to another, it also migrates in terms of instrumentation. In moving from solo soprano to solo cello, incidentally an instrument already connected to the supermecha, it is even further abstracted from humanity. As intended by the composer, this theme goes on the same journey as David and develops as he does, from its first unused appearances in Rouge City, performed on David's instrument, the piano, To its solo soprano performance in the depths of the ocean, and finally, 
the cello reading. specialist explains to David that they can bring Monica back, but only for one day. David cannot fully accept this, but only wants to be with Monica again. With the subtlest of farewells to the Blue Fairy theme in the cellos, David's one last perfect day with his mother begins. Williams presents an extended development of Monica's theme, briefly joined by an interlude of David's playful theme. Monica finally expresses her love for David, the one moment he's been longing for for over 2,000 years. Finally, he can be at peace and achieve the ultimate in humanity, a dignified death. As the lights in the Swinton household dim one by one for the last time, Williams' final cue draws to a close. Anyone who has been to a John Williams concert will be familiar with his anecdotes. Two stand out, the first about Schindler's List, which we won't go into here, and the second about E.T. It may be apocryphal, and it may have been embellished in the telling and retelling, but Williams sticks to it, so we'll continue. Legend has it that while recording the bike chase at the end of the film, he was struggling to hit the many, many sync points. Spielberg suggested turning off the film, allowing Williams to conduct the music freely. Spielberg then recut the film to match the music. Rumour has it that a similar situation occurred during the AI sessions. It could explain why two different versions of the reunion exist, recorded almost a month apart. The end credits open with a version of Monica's theme, this time arranged for solo soprano and again performed by Barbara Bonney. This draws the material for Monica and the Blue Fairy closer together once again. By imprinting David in the first place, she was the one who made David live, and is, in a way, 
also the Blue Fairy. William's original intention was to open the end credits with a reprise of the abandonment theme, but this may have been considered too much of a tonal shift. The score was released as a single disc album, with cues reordered and edited as is William's custom. The presentation is mostly chronological, with the journey to Manhattan, retitled The Mecca World, moved to the front of the album to open with more punch. It covers most highlights of the score, but is limited by its brevity and suffers from unnecessary repetition a common trait in Williams' albums of the time. Abandoned in the Woods appears twice, the Strauss excerpt is clumsily edited out, and the Blue Fairy material is poorly represented. Bizarrely, David's theme is entirely absent, but it's not the first time Williams has excised an entire strand of thematic material from an album. even the second, for that matter. In a move that was perhaps to make the album a more commercial prospect, Monica's theme was adapted into a song titled For Always, with lyrics by songwriter Cynthia Vile. The song is performed by Lara Fabian, who can also be heard performing The Dream Within from Elliot Goldenthal's Final Fantasy recorded earlier in 2001. If one version of the song wasn't enough, the album presents a second, a duet featuring Lara Fabian once again and Josh Groban. Neither of these appear in the film, and although based on Williams' material, are a curiosity at best, harming the flow of the album and adding yet more unnecessary repetition. The original album was also released in 5.1 surround sound on the high-resolution DVD audio format. The disc is still relatively easy to find if you can play this now-defunct format. Williams' score was nominated for the Academy Award, Golden Globe, and Grammy, losing to Howard Shaw's The Fellowship of the Ring, Craig Armstrong's Moulin Rouge, and Tan Dunn's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, respectively. Despite not winning anything to add to Williams' long, burgeoning awards cabinet, the nominations did result in the creation of an expanded, for your consideration, promotional two-disc set. This presented an early, longer version of the score's album program, dropping the two songs, and a pile of additional cues that were otherwise unreleased, some of which were nowhere to be heard in the film. For a time a hot property on the secondary market, it was never approved by the composer and is little more than a footnote now. All previous releases were superseded in 2015 with La La Land Records' lavish limited edition three-disc set. Produced, edited, and mastered by Mike Mattesino, and approved by the composer, it is a textbook example of how an expanded score release should be handled.
Williams' complete score is presented across the first two discs, with additional music on the third. Long out of print, it has been re-released for the 20th anniversary and should be a part of any discerning Williams fan's soundtrack collection. The expanded release revealed the existence of several concert-style arrangements of themes over and above what had already been heard on the original album. Sadly, other than a couple of performances of For Always programmed by the composer in the early 2000s, the music of AI is rarely performed in concert. It's also missing from the third volume of the Spielberg-Williams collaboration re-recordings, but then so are The Lost World and War of the Worlds. Twenty years down the line, the film has been reappraised by fans and critics alike. Is it a masterpiece? That's not for me to decide. It's undeniably a loving homage to Kubrick from one of his closest friends and associates, and perhaps that's enough. Williams' score, particularly in expanded form, is one of his best of the 2000s, with shades of emotional depth and complexity that few other film composers can match. Williams did not have much time to rest in the spring and early summer of 2001. A magical franchise loomed on the horizon, and a substantial amount of music was needed. I'm your host. Jim Ware. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading Tone. Join me later this year as I delve into the depths of Harry Potter and the philosophers, or should that be sorcerers, stone. (laughs) 